Every month, we offer exciting new webinars for our community. Topics include how to use retirement accounts to buy real estate overseas, how to get a second passport in Latin America, why you should sell your stock portfolio and move your money offshore, how to buy beachfront rental properties in Brazil for less than $100,000, or apartments in Paraguay for less than $60,000. If you want to join us for free for these presentations with live Q&A, insider secrets, and exclusive opportunities with my professional network of experts, then go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for free upcoming presentations. expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. We all dream of seeing the world, but the realities of living somewhere outside your place of birth can be daunting to say the least. Welcome to the Expat Money Show, helping you make the most out of your overseas career through conversations with successful expats on investing, entrepreneurship, self-improvement, and continual education, all while sharpening your financial acumen. Now, please welcome your host with over 20 years of overseas experience, Mikkel Thorup. My new book, Expat Secrets, is doing fantastic on Amazon right now. The book paints a clear picture on how to internationalize your life. We get into how to use the offshore markets to protect your assets, minimize your taxes, and grab yourself a second passport. We talk about the best places to live, the best places to hold your wealth, and the best places to run your business from. At the end of this book, you'll have a much clearer picture of how things fit together and what steps you need to take in your own life to diversify your business, wealth, and life overseas. You can grab a copy on Amazon today by searching Expat Secrets or going to expatsecretsbook.com. That's expatsecretsbook.com. Okay, let's jump into today's interview. You're going to love this conversation. Let's do it. Welcome, welcome, welcome. My name is Mikkel Thorpe. This is the Expat Money Show, and today's guest is a best-selling author and executive at Keller Williams Realty, Inc., and co-owner of Keller, Inc., Keller Capital, and Papasan Properties Group. His most recent work with Gary Keller, The One Thing, has sold more than 1.5 million copies and been translated into 35 languages. And he has appeared on more than 500 national bestsellers lists, including number one on the Wall Street Journal's bestseller list. Please welcome to the show, Jay Papazen. Jay, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Mikhail. Thanks so much for having me. My pleasure. I'm, I've been really looking forward to this conversation for a couple of months now. So why don't we start just a little bit about your backstory and how you got working with Gary Keller and, and how you got into real estate and anything that, uh, you know, uh, might be good for my listeners. Sure, sure. I'll try to pull a thread through it because it's mostly got to do with books. So um, from a pretty early age, um, as an introvert, I had my nose in a book. So it, what didn't surprise anyone when I got an English degree um, in my hometown college of Memphis University. And from there, I had um, one of my favorite professors in high school had been our French professor. And me and my best friends had all hung out with him. He had taken us to France. I'd later gone backpacking. So my closest friend from seventh grade on um, actually went to do his junior year abroad and never came back. He still lives in between Italy and Paris. So when I graduated from college, I did about three years in Paris, um, hanging out with him, working for a medical company. 
have to throw, I get to throw that part in. It's usually not relevant, but since this is the expat <laughs> money show, I can talk about, you know, that time spent, thankfully, before Facebook existed when I had, you know, John Lennon glasses and a ponytail, right? And just kind of doing the expat thing, uh, but earning a living while I was doing it. And then uh, after about three years of that, came back, got a master's at NYU and jumped into publishing. Um, I spent um, my last years in New York City working at HarperCollins Publishers, where I got to work on a number of big books. Um, great education for me. Um, and more fabulously, that's where I met my wife. Um, so we got married um, in 1999, um, quit our jobs, threw everything in storage, and then went backpacking all across Europe and North Africa for five and a half months um, before throwing a dart at the map and visiting Austin and then moving here without jobs. And we've been here ever since. And that is kind of the long path to how I got to Keller Williams because not having a job in Austin, I was freelancing. Very tough way to make a living about that time when all of the media spins were going away from magazines and online. And I was kind of caught between two worlds. I think my taxable income in 2000 was like $18,000. It was ridiculous. So um, that fall, my wife just said, Love that you're getting these big, you know, highly, um, I guess, prestigious magazines. I was in Texas Monthly, um, Memphis Magazine, which were great regional magazines, but it wasn't paying the bills. And as an introvert, I wasn't meeting anybody in Austin. So I took a job at then a small regional real estate company called Keller Williams. Um, they were only in, I think, 30 or so states at that point. I had 6,700 agents in 2000 when I joined. And there were 27 employees. And after bouncing around and that marvelous little company started out as a newsletter writer, I found out um, I launched like two other departments because they were growing like crazy. And then I found out that Gary Keller, the founder, um, wanted to write a book. I approached him in the bathroom. Um, you know, it's a small building, so you just bump into each other. There's the chairman and the founder. Um, he was literally plunging a toilet because he owned the building. <laughs> made a crack about how he wasn't too proud to do whatever it took, you know? And I just said, Hey, do you, I hear you're writing a book. Do you remember I used to work at Harvard Collins? And that led to a conversation where he shared a vision for writing 13 books. He laid out five of his favorite ones. Um, as serendipity would have it, two of them were books I'd edited at Harper Collins. I showed him my name and acknowledgements. And within a week I was officed outside of his main office and we were doing a business plan for our first book, which took us a little more than 90 days to write. It was called The Millionaire Real Estate Agent. And I thought it would be a very small book. I did not want my name on it. Um, I didn't want to be pigeonholed as a real estate author. And so I wasn't even sure I was going to stick around. He insisted on it because I had written a lot of the words, even if the ideas were his. And that book went on to be a million copy bestseller. And that's kind of what launched our partnership. We um, became partners in the real estate company. I became an executive in his real estate um, empire now. Um, it's been marvelous to watch it grow from 6,700 agents to 170,000 today in 34 countries. And um, all the other things, you know, Keller Capital, I got to be a partner in that. My wife launched our real estate team. Um, I definitely all take it back to that weird conversation in the bathroom that started a really amazing partnership for me where I got to work with a self-made billionaire. Um, and that's kind of the short version. Um, hopefully I kept that within the rails and, and hit a few of the high points that you wanted me to. Wow. 
That's hilarious how you, so you just walk in, you're just like, hi, Gary, good work cleaning or pumping the toilet. Um, <laughs> and now you went on to write a book with him that was sold over a million copies. And you actually wrote how many books with him now? Um, my name has appeared on six books with him, um, one without him. And we've, we've published together 11 books through our little, I wouldn't call it a publishing company. It's in, in the industry, you would call it a packaging company because we create finished books and then we allow other publishing companies to distribute them. Um, because we're, it's a business within the business and we have a, we have goals that align with our other businesses. So, um, that's kind of been the operation. And those books collectively, when you have the millionaire real estate agent and um, the one thing, both million copy bestsellers have sold about 3.7 million copies. That's incredible. Because I first became aware of your name when I got a copy of The One Thing. And I think I read it in like a day and a half. Actually, I think I got it on Audible and just did it, yeah, in about a day or a day and a half. And a lot of light bulbs clicked for me because I've been on an entrepreneur for many years. But really... I do try to be the superstar. I try to do so many things and know so many things. And and the book really lays out for you how to focus, how to goal set correctly, how to work backwards from problems. And and I just thought it was so brilliant the way that you guys put it together. Um, and I became a fan instantly. Oh, well, thank you. I mean, we spent almost five years working on it. And I can tell you, writers are by nature neurotic. I, I remember uh, our marketing director, after reading the manuscript, the finished manuscript, sent me a handwritten note saying it was going to be big. And I just burst into tears because I had so much tension. It's like you're, you're working in a vacuum for so long and you're just afraid that like, what if I've wasted four and a half years of my life? So I never get tired of people saying it's good. Yay. We got that. We did it right. Um, and as an author, that's your dream, right? That you can reach people. But um, Gary, uh, what I love about working with him is he's always talking to the founder. He's always talking to the entrepreneur. Um, I remember our publisher going, can you make this conversation be to the cubicles? And he's like, no, that's just not my natural style. I want to talk to the CEO. I want to talk to the founder, the entrepreneur, because that's been his whole career. And he goes, I promise you, there are people in the cubicles who aspire to that, and I will be speaking to them too. And it's worked out. And it's now, I guess it's been translated uh, 35 times now. So I, you probably read, if you were overseas, in addition to a yellow cover, if you read it in English, which I love seeing because ours is white. Huh. Yeah, I think I got mine on Audible, but I've definitely seen it on the bookshelves here in the UAE, and it does have a yellow copy, a yellow cover. Yeah, it's very distinctive. <laughs> yeah. But even like everything about the book is... I'm going to gush for a little bit here, but it is so clean. The cover is so clean. When you visit the website for the additional material, the website is so clean. Everything is just like, you guys did a really good job on it. I'm well impressed. Well, that, that credit goes to the team. Um, I happen to be kind of like in charge of making sure all the parts talk to each other. But our publisher, Ray Bard, um, he's kind of a legend in the industry. He's here in Austin, but he only does one book a year. And he skipped a year to work with us. So he worked with us for two full years. So he gives, I mean, it's perfect for the one thing, right? Most publishers are publishing as many books as they can to put as many bets on the table as possible, hoping one will pay off. He puts all of his eggs in one basket. So he was prepared to give the book a lot of love. 
And we worked with an amazing designer who's still with us today, Caitlin McIntosh, who's on our team and leads a lot of our designers in our real estate company. And we just gave her huge bandwidth to interpret the book and the underlines and all of that. She picked up all of our favorite books and flipped through them and saw that Gary and I both like draw in our books and we underline and write notes in the margin. And she wanted to make the book feel like that. And so I just give her and Ray a lot of credit because most publishers would never let you play with it as long as we did. And we've really benefited from a really brilliant designer being on the team who really interpreted a lot of what makes Gary's teaching and the kind of way we operate right into the book. So, and you know, it's called the one thing. You don't expect it to be busy. So she did a good job of keeping it clean, as you said. So I'm, I'm super proud of that. Even though I didn't execute it, I got to be a part of the team, but it's a, uh, I think it won 11 book awards. Wow. Well, it, it is branding done correctly for a book. Like this is something that people can actually model if they are budding authors and they looking at design. Like I published my book last year and, you know, I wish that I had of had yours next to it to model a lot of these different things. But um, like, yeah, I don't want to talk too much about <laughs> Well, I love that you say that. That's a business lesson, right? Um, modeling. We call it modeling. And whatever you want to do, it's about figuring out best practices. But when I first met with Gary and I said that he had he laid out his five favorite books and I'd edited two of them, when we wrote the very first book, we had um, The Millionaire Next Door, Good to Great, Body for Life, a weightlifting book by Bill Phillips, Mia Hamm's Go for the Goal, and a book I can never remember. I have no idea what the fifth book was. But I remember we modeled all five of them. And what we loved about Good to Great and The Millionaire Next Door is that the methodology was to go out and interview a bunch of top performers and ask, what do they have in common? Which is very unusual because the millionaire real estate agent or the one thing could be all about, I mean, Gary's a self-made billionaire. It could be all about his ideas. But he chose to make it research-based. And um, the Body for Life book had an opening section called The Myths and Truths. And that book was very big. It sold like 6 million copies. And the big claim to fame was it was the one that debunked the idea that cardio was the best way to burn fat. And it showed scientifically that weightlifting was a better way to burn fat. And it kind of changed the, the industry. But Gary loved the idea of there being myths and truths. And you know the book, We Start With the Lies. And... So we've modeled a lot of other books, and I just think any entrepreneur, I think even in a career, and we talk about this in the book, if you want to be with the best, you want to perform the best, start by asking, what do the best do? And start there versus your own creativity. But that's so interesting because you would think that Gary Keller, okay, like you said, self-made billionaire, billionaire with a B, he would be able to write about his own techniques, his own thought process, but he still went out there, or you guys as a team went out there and re-researched and talked to people and successful people and looked at things objectively and saw how you can combine the information. That's so humbling, and that's, that's just an incredible thing to learn from someone, I think. I, I think if you study the top people, like the Bill Gates a lot of them have these amazing intuitions. So a lot of the beginnings of the book were a hypothesis from Gary. But what a lot of these top, top performers have in common is they're very honest in their perspective. They look in the mirror and they see the warts and all. And because they do, they're able to course correct. 
So when we found research that refuted Gary's hypothesis, we cut those parts of the book. And we weren't just doing the, the bias, right? We weren't just looking for proof to support his ideas. We had one researcher looking for proof, one to disprove. So we actively tried to counter that. But I just love that that's his attitude. And now when I look at other entrepreneurs, how honest they are about their own business is usually an indication of how big they're eventually going to be. Well, that's brilliant. So talk to me then about a couple of the other things that you've noticed while working with Gary Keller that are indicative for success. Well, I mean, the, the One Thing book, right, which is the reason we're talking today, I remember um, how that book came about. It started with an essay Gary wrote for a course we were working on together called The Power of One. And it was at that point really about how every entrepreneur's first job was to go out and get more leads for the business. And if you neglect that, you probably won't be around for very long, especially when you're starting up. And when he laid it out, right, figure out what matters most and dedicate, you know, three hours a day to doing that one thing. And some of that language is showing up. This was before the book was really even fully formed. I'd worked with Gary long enough by then to understand that he is a pretty smart guy, but he's rarely by intent the smartest person in the room. His real superpower is he is willing to work hardest to figure out what the true priority is. And then once he acknowledges this is the number one, he'll give it more time and resources than anyone else. And he will literally wear out everyone. We're all like, okay, we've got this nailed. Let's move on. No, he just won't. Like if you're in a meeting that has three agenda points, if you're number three, good luck. We're not getting there because we'll stay on number one forever. And then maybe we'll get to number two because he always goes to the top priority. And that really is, I mean, the essence of the book. Are you willing to, to really look at your performance um, your track record, your business model, and really to say, what is the real priority? And then give it the resources it demands. And I think most people, when you ask them, what's your one thing? They actually surprised me. I didn't expect this. They actually do often know the answer and they actually feel guilty for not doing more of it. Our problem is most of us, especially entrepreneurs are so busy. We have so many things we have to attend to, especially if we're an independent contractor or a solopreneur, right? Because you have to be your own janitor, your own accountant, all of those things, right? You're so busy and divided, we just not even stopping to ask the question. So if I had to pick one other thing, I'd just say um, he is truly priority driven. And my publishing thing was like, this is great. So this book actually aligns with who he really is. And it's very validating to have that coincide. So that high, high, high attention to detail and then really knowing things like, and I would say, like, I see so many entrepreneurs who are trying to add things in, but it seems to me that in the one thing and, and working with Gary, it's, it's really taking away. It's really taking away and becoming that unbelievably clear of exactly what it is that's going to move the business. And it's, it's a, it's a very natural thing. Um, I think if you have the entrepreneur gene, one of the things that you've been gifted with or cursed with, depending on where you are in the process, is that you have, you're attuned to opportunity. So you're attuned to seeing things that other people miss. That's why you started your business. And that same kind of awareness is constantly going to be a distraction once you go 
you dive into that main thing because you're constantly seeing low-hanging fruit. Oh, we could do this. We could do this, right? You're an idea person. And that can be very counterproductive to actually launching and, and growing your business because you're dividing your efforts. So it's a, it's a weird how those two things come together. But the entrepreneurs who are willing to say no a whole lot, and I love the Steve Jobs you know, example. I think when he joined um, Apple, there was something like over 400 different product types. That was back when they made you know printers and stuff. And within like two years, they had narrowed it down to like 10 products. So he said no to so many things so they could actually be great at a few. And I really do think that is that tension you see all these possibilities. That's your gift. And your curse is that you have to choose. Well, that's so interesting about the entrepreneur's gene. Because when I first started as an entrepreneur, I would be trying to do 50, 100, 1,000 different things. And I guess what it really comes down to is an entrepreneur solves problems. So the more you can be honed into that one or two problem that is out there in the marketplace and then be the best solution for that. I think that's really like the starting ground for a lot of entrepreneurs. And if, and if you're, if you're foggy on that, if you don't understand what that big problem is and how it is that you are going to solve it in a unique, um, meaningful manner, I think that you're going to find this journey very difficult. I love that you talked about, you know, that thing you could be number one in and, you know, that would, you know, be the hedgehog principle. If you've read Jim Collins, I always associate that with, is it um, Trout and Reese, the 21 immutable laws of marketing? Like figure out the category, the product category that you can actually be number one in, right? If you have to say, you know, among single mothers with seven children, I am blah, 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 blah. Like if you have to slice it down there, great, but own that first market and then grow from there. Um, yeah, it is that that ability to identify what is my real opportunity and focus on that first. Then you get to, with that flag on the ground, get to expand your empire. Absolutely. So talk to me about some of the doors that the one thing has opened up for you. I know that you've got the website and there's additional material on there and you guys do coaching and there's courses and there's a whole bunch of other things that come uh, on the back end of the one thing. Can you discuss that a little bit with me? Sure. I mean, I think that the, the whole point of the book, right, the surprisingly simple truth behind extraordinary results is that it's not terribly complicated. Um, we tried to make it a simple kind of approach to how you go about your business, but it's also not easy. So we do have at the one thing.com, we've created some training courses. We've got a community of people who are trying to build a culture of the one thing in their businesses, whether they're a manager or not. And um, we even partnered with my friend, Abe Shreve, who started um, a coaching company that coaches directly to this because some people just want one-on-one. -on -one. And so we have built out um, kind of a bigger business behind it. Um, but I would just say none of that would be possible if Gary and I hadn't done our work on the front end to make the book work um, and work for people. And what I love about Gary and what we both share in our writing, and you're an author, so you know this, it's... It's one thing to change someone's mind. It's another thing to change their behavior. And um, the reason that, you know, you know this too, you know, the book sales themselves don't make anyone rich unless your name is James Patterson or Stephen King, right? You have to be in that 1% of 1% of 1% 
where your book sales are truly that big because you're stacking quarters and nickels. It's what your business becomes a platform for that can really allow you to grow big. But you have to have that platform really sturdily built. I, I was just talking about this the other day with a friend about how figuring out and kind of nailing your one thing, that domino effect, how you can create this kind of geometric progression. Gary's super skill, like underneath everything, was he was always a great teacher. And teaching and coaching where, where he got his passion, that's where he gets his energy. And whatever he did in the business, he always ended up finding himself back in that spot. And he wanted at one point to be like a rock and roll star. He wasn't even enrolled in college. He was going to make a living as a musician, but he wasn't that good. And he realized that. And it still astounds me to know that this kid existed with a Fu Manchu directionless, right? And his parents actually secretly enrolled him in college. And then he decided to go, which is just so alien to me that he was, you know, he hadn't yet developed those other characteristics. But today, because he did stick with that, and became so good at it. You know, when he was building Keller Williams, he had a reputation as the best trainer in Austin. And that allowed him to build it here. And then we became known as the number one training company along the way as a, as a real estate franchise company. We were training magazine like three years in a row. And that allowed us to grow big. And now, like when we have our, our, uh, we call it a family reunion, our annual conference, like we had 18,000 people in New Orleans. Well, guess who was playing with the band? No way. Right? So, like, when you do that one thing really well, it opens up so many of these doors. And some of them might be things that were dreams you thought were long forgotten. You know, he took up the guitar again in his 40s. He plays with a band. Um, yes, there are a couple of ringers. We're in Austin, Texas. This is a great music town. And he can afford to have a couple of ringers in his band. But he's playing lead guitar in front of 18,000 people. And that has got to be amazing when he goes back in his mind to that 18-year-old or 17-year-old kid with the Fu Manchu that dreamed of that. It was an unexpected path that got there. And I really do think that's kind of the magic of the one thing. You know, Google started as a search company. Now they're Alphabet. But if they hadn't built that, built that search company so well, Alphabet would, Alphabet would not exist today. I just want to take a quick break here. After I finished recording the conversation with Richard Mayberry, he made a very special offer to all my amazing listeners here at the Expat Money Show. He offered us a 40% off discount on his one-year subscription to Early Warning Report, his financial newsletter that includes 10 timely issues. If you live in the USA, you get it delivered physically to your door and electronically. And if you live overseas like me, he's going to send it to you electronically in a PDF. Every month when my report comes in, I print it out, sit on my balcony with an espresso, and read it all in one sitting. I rely on early warning report to understand how things fit together from that 40,000-foot view, how geopolitics, economics, and law are affecting my money today. Richard Mayberry's writing in Early Warning Report is the closest thing you are going to find to seeing into the future. If you want to learn more about this special opportunity and claim 40% off the cover price of Early Warning Report today, just go to expatmoneyshow.com forward slash EWR. That's EWR for Early Warning Report. 
So really the his ability to train and teach and coach was really the the back the backbone you could say that was able to grow the real estate company to such a massive level. I believe so. I believe that our book business is him teaching to just a, an infinite classroom, right? I mean, the fact that he can reach a million plus people with his real estate career book, the millionaire real estate agent. I mean, like I did not want my name associated with that when I first started with the company because I thought it would just be a very small, you know, niche book. But that allowed him to have a bigger platform to reach a wider audience and say, this is our value proposition. And that attracted a lot of people. People would show up at our door saying, I read this red book. Um, I want to know more about the company. Like it served as a marketing arm for us because he was, that was him teaching through a different medium. But I think that that is such an important point because books really still, even in 2019, as we're recording this really are so important today. Like, You've used books now, I can see in two different examples, as, as the backbone, as I just said, in the business. So with Keller Williams to be able to build a real estate giant, behemoth, on the back end of the publishing, and then be able to build, you know, you guys have a podcast, a coaching program, courses, all these different educational things that you do with the one thing. And, and it all starts from, from the genesis of the book. And... I guess that that's why it took you guys, what what did you say, four and a half years to get the book right, is because you understood how important it actually is. And we struggled a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we uh, we actually writing a book on focus. To be completely honest, we got distracted. Um, the great real estate recession, you know, in the United States happened right in the middle of that process, and we took our eye off that ball because we thought we had a new one thing. And we wrote a book called Shift, which was about how real estate agents could navigate those giant market shifts. And that was a best-selling book, but it was also a six-plus-month distraction from the one thing. Um, but that, that is the reality, right? That you invest really heavily, almost disproportionately, in what you think is the foundation. And that big, broad, strong foundation is what allows you to build on top of it. Um, it's really hard to go back when you don't have a good foundation and, and rebuild it. Um, but that is part of, you know, that active faith that I'm going to make this, you know, my one thing. It is going to be, I'm going to build my business on this. I'm going to build my career on this. And people who get known for having an exceptional skill advance, right? They're the ones, I mean, the whole reason that executives are given um, executive assistance Right? These men and women who trail them around and take all of the unnecessary stuff off their plate because the company realizes this person is so exceptional at this thing, whether it be leadership or programming or whatever, we're going to pay a whole other person to keep them from getting distracted from it. And it works the same way in business. Um, like I said, though, that entrepreneur gene works against us. But I think that with a good framework, with time blocking some of the things that we talk about and we discovered in our research that you can navigate that and be super successful. Well, uh, I even think of my own modest little business and life here. You know, my entire family supports me, so I don't need to do things like cook or clean or answer the phone. I don't set my own schedule. I don't do like I try to just focus on the, the few things that I do exceptionally well and 
everything else is taken care of for me. Now, I am very fortunate that I have a family who is um, very supportive of me. But, you know, why would I be cleaning the bathroom in our house or something like that if I could pay a maid to come and do that and I give her $20 an hour or $30 an hour? And if I go out there and do something else and I'm going to make X number of that, you know, I should be focusing on that thing. If I can bring in leads, if I can, you know, talk to people like you on the phone, this is the thing that I need to be focusing on and, and not that other distractions. I love that. It's actually when uh, my wife and I teach a wealth building class, one of the exercises we have people do is, and, and largely it's entrepreneurs and independent contractors, right? People who they can invest all hours and actually control their income, right? It doesn't really work this way for salaried employees, but it's pretty easy to figure out your dollars per hour. As a rough estimate, if you made $100,000 last year, um, based on the average work cycle, you're about a $50 an hour person. So if you can, through the investment of your time, average $50 an hour, it makes total sense to pay someone $20 an hour to clean your home because that two or three hours it might take you to do that, it'll take you longer than a professional, by the way, right? Because to do it at the same level because that's all they do. That is their one thing. That is, you're leaving money on the table every time you do that. And so that's a good mental trick for asking, you know, where should I be investing my hours? Um, is this a higher paying wage for me to do this or this? And that's one of the reasons why, like the first hire I pretty much universally tell entrepreneurs to get is admin help, right? Admin is a lower dollar per hour than business building activities. And if you can do the business building activities, lead generation, lead conversion, right? Servicing, then someone else can do the paperwork. And that frees up more and more of your time. And you often can make twice what your cost is on the admin if you're keeping your focus on the stuff that matters. Um, but it's just a great way. No one succeeds alone. Um, if you have a family, that's free labor. Woohoo! If not, choose to be successful, right? And you can leverage those tasks out as you become successful. I, I'm, I'm just trying to get to, to the core of these, you know, wealth building strategies and mindsets. You know, I'm, I'm obsessed with mindset. And considering you've worked so closely with Gary Keller, you know, it's just interesting things that you've seen in your career, things that you've seen him do in his career. Like you've built multiple businesses and and I just think it's so fascinating how people think. So, so I do love this conversation. Well, great. Then I'm gonna go a little deeper into that whole dollars per hour conversation. I think um, having now been a part of so many coaching sessions and so many training sessions with top people, if I had to name one of the top mistakes that successful entrepreneurs make is that as their income rises, they allow their lifestyle to rise in lockstep. And what I got to observe with Gary Keller and his original partner, uh, Mo Anderson, is that they did a really good job of freezing their lifestyle while their business grew around them. And Gary was just militant about it. Um, I remember when I joined the company and it, he started this thing like in 1983, right? It had been around a little while and he was driving a black Ford Taurus with a really cool stereo, but it was a cheap car. And Mo Anderson, our CEO at the time said, Gary, if you pick up another potential business partner from the airport in the Ford Taurus, you understand what you're saying to them. 
If you join our team, you too can be so successful, you can drive a Ford Taurus as well. And said, you've got to drive a nicer car. It's just as bad for our image. And he said, sure, but the company has to lease it for me. I won't pay for it out of my own pocket. And he made them lease him a Lexus. And his discipline, right? And I was with him. I mean, already in the 2000s, when he took a million dollars as income out of the business for the first time. And when you ask him about this, he said, I was reinvesting in business asset and systems, and then ultimately in people. I could invest, money invested in the right leaders is an infinite rate of return. And he was just building out that foundation, that foundation, foundation. And for a 10 year period from 96 to about 2006 or seven, we grew by an average of 40% year over year. It just defied the law of big numbers. Year after year, I was watching it going, there's no way that's sustainable and we kept doing it. And I believe it was because he chose to freeze his lifestyle and reinvest all of that additional money back into the business and just kept playing that game. It was almost like letting it ride on a poker table in some ways, but he was doing other things to invest and secure his future. But he really wasn't, you know, just rushing out to buy the biggest, fanciest car and the biggest, fanciest house. He saw that business as the ultimate reinvestment and the people who do that well. And that is so amazing. I got to watch my wife do it. Because it was our second income. I said, let's just live on my salary and that will allow you to grow your real estate business and reinvest back in people. So she had a paid assistant within months of getting into real estate. And that allowed her to focus on the things that mattered. And it just multiplied much faster that way. Okay, so talk to me a little bit about investing in people because I think this is a really fantastic topic. And, and I think that sometimes people misunderstand it and maybe do it wrong. You know, I, I see a lot of people, they try to get help, but they nickel and dime people over their hourly wage, or they won't give them any, like, talk to me a little bit about your views for investing in people to help build the business. So we've probably, in terms of R&D, outside of technology, we've invested more into hiring than anything else. Um, I know for a period of time, we were spending more than a million dollars a year on it. And I've been a part with Gary of writing multiple, multiple day courses on how to hire better, how to select better, how to manage better, uh, simple systems for accountability. So this is huge for us. And Gary credits a lot of success to this idea of no one succeeds alone. So I think the number one thing that happens is when you're bootstrapping it in the beginning and because you are the founder. Um, it's not that you're better at doing all of these things. You're just more invested, right? And you don't want to be the janitor of your little shop, but you can't afford one. So you actually do a good job because you want your customers to have a good experience if they have to go to the bathroom when they're in your store. And that's like maybe the worst example, but you're invested. And so it's very hard to hire someone who has that same sense of ownership. And so first off, they have the wrong expectations. They expect people to see the world the way they do, which is a little weird. And then they make a second mistake. They wait till they're completely underwater, hair on fire, um, overwhelmed to make higher help. And they pick the first good thing that shows up. They're not selecting. They're like recruiting people to join them. And that's the wrong attitude. That's how you end up in business with the wrong people. And we do an exercise in our classes called the cost of a bad hire. And just to illustrate it, and this is totally typical, I did it for a, um, 
a restaurant movie theater chain. And I asked them, you know, sit down right now, think of the last really bad hire that you had to fire. And I walked them through a series of questions, right? How much goodwill did you lose with your existing customers? How much actual business did they cost you? How much did it cost to fix their mistakes? Blah, 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 blah. And one of them raised their hand. I said, who has a uh, one they want to share? A waiter who had lived in their system for about six months before they realized this person was kind of a cancer. He calculated that it cost the company over $140,000. So the stakes are really high and we don't need to just jump into bed with new people. We need to select them. So have a process. So I could go on literally for days but I would just say, if you boil it down, here would be the process. Um, look up and, and look ahead and say, if we keep growing at this pace, it will be necessary for our business to have help in admin or whatever that first hire is at this date. Um, I remember my wife was paying to have someone to do contract close. It cost about $400 a transaction. It'd pay as you go. But when she had a, a signed contract, they would take it to closing, like a three-week process. And I remember when she was going to around 50 transactions, the math made more sense to hire someone because by 75 transactions, we would lose money on the pay as you go versus having a full-time employee. And so around 50, we started looking and we had hired and onboarded them before we got to 75. So you look out, you forecast it so you can actually be calm and not so crazy behind that you just pick a good thing. And then here's your criteria. You want to ask, what kind of behavior am I looking for for this job, right? If you have someone who's going to be doing accounting, it's very unlikely that they're going to be highly social, right? So if you have a bias for highly social, you may be hiring the wrong person to keep your books. So be aware of behavior and you can use free tools like the disk. I don't care. We, we invest in one called the, the KPA, which we love. But whatever it is, if you can test for it for free or even a pay tool for the behavior required for the job, and then have a simple job description. So, Nikel, I would say you're going to hire someone to be your producer for your podcast. What are the three things that if that producer doesn't do well, you would have to fire them? So it's not a positive imprint. It's a negative. You're going to, if they can't do these three things well, you would have to let them go, no matter how good they were at everything else. That distills the job description down to its real core, and that's what you're interviewing for. Tell me about your sound editing. Tell me about your video. I, I actually don't know what the three things are for your you know, production values. I'm sure your producer could chime in and let us know. But you would identify those things and you would be interviewing for those things. You would call references on those things. That makes it highly likely that you'll have someone who's behaviorally a fit for the job and who has the skills for the core of the job. And if you get lucky, they can grow with your business. But having even that simple of a process, like that's not too many steps, right? Forecast it. Figure out if there's the behavior attached to it. Test for that and have a three-point job description and test for that. You're golden. You'll do a far better job of surrounding yourself with people that free you up, you know, problem solvers instead of problem solvers who actually complicate your life. And a lot of people swear off hiring because they hired the wrong person, had a horrible experience. That experience was on them, not the person they hired. They're the one who hired them, but they still throw talent, right, and hiring jobs out under the bus and say, I'm going to be a solopreneur. I've seen it a million times. 
Well, being a solopreneur is a surefire way to stay small. That That is absolutely true. But that's very interesting, the way that you're looking at hiring. So you're looking at it from kind of the other side than I think people would traditionally look at it from. People would just go, okay, who is, you know, got the best education or the best experience is the best in the field. But actually coming at it from the negatives, I think that's a really interesting way of doing it. And I might keep that in mind myself. It's, it's pretty handy. And I can't remember the science behind it, but there are cognitive, you know, tricks behind it. So if you were hiring someone and we just happen to be having lunch, like one of my favorite questions, like you're on the verge of making an offer. I would say, awesome. It sounds like this is an amazing person. Um, answer this question for me, Mikhail. If you had to fire this person in six months, why did you have to let them go? And what's crazy is people often know the answer, but they're burying it under all the good stuff. And then I just say, cool, can you live with that? And the other one is, in six months, this person's doing really well, and they walk in and say, I've got to leave. Why are they leaving? And you identify that maybe you're not creating a big enough career path or you're seeing where they're likely to go because you hopefully want this person to, this is their next logical step in their career. That's the ultimate that you want. But like, it's weird. You frame those negatives, right? It's not that you're staying in business, but the person you're being fired or leaving you, there's something about that negative framing that gives people a lot of clarity. I don't remember why, but it really does work. No, that's brilliant. And then to go back to your earlier point about hiring and the cost of hiring people, I'm just thinking back at my own life because right now I do, I outsource a lot of my legal work. So I have clients who come in, I outsource them to a, to a lawyer. Well, when I was talking to my mentor this last week, I was uh, in Austria visiting him and he was saying, okay, we need to start looking at you hiring a full-time lawyer who's just going to work for you so that I can just send all the work directly to them and instead of always outsourcing it, you know, you outsource the work and it's $2,000, $2,000, $2,000, $2,000. At what point does it become more economical just to hire someone outright and then just pile their plate up? So I think it's really interesting, this topic today um, and how applicable it actually is in my own life. Like you might be able to get a great attorney on retainer for 60 grand a year, just 30 referrals. And you would be able to tell them one time exactly how you wanted to handle all of that book of business. And you wouldn't constantly be having to do a lot of the other things you do when you refer the work out. So, yeah, it's just a math problem um, and a little bit of a faith. Like, will I actually grow my business consistently to have 30 referrals? Because you've now got a fixed cost. And that is the tension, right? You love the variable cost because you only pay it when you need to. But you often save money when you go with the fixed cost if you're growing. But it's so interesting to be able to think forwards. Okay, in six months or in 12 months, this is where I should be based on what has happened in the past. And already thinking ahead on the hiring and investing in people to help you grow your business. And I suppose doing it before you're underwater, like you were saying before, before it's like uh, you're scrambling and you end up taking that first person that uh, pops their head in the door. Yeah, we call it hiring from pain. And it, it shows up a lot because a lot of times, like maybe you just didn't expect, like you get a huge contract, like out of the blue, an enterprise contract, and your business goes from operating at 100 widgets a day to 1,000. Like there was no forecast for that. And now you are rushing to fill those gaps to service the opportunity. And that's where we've identified one of the number one places where people make a bad hire. 
Um, they, they refuse to hit the brakes just long enough to find the right person and then accelerate. Okay, Jay, so talk to me a little bit about how business strategies like these can be added to wealth building. You're, you're quite known in the field for having uh, distinct uh, ideas about how to build wealth. So, um, again, I got to, it's kind of nice hanging out with the Gary Kellers of the world and see how they think and act around money. Um, and we also um, wrote a book called The Millionaire Real Estate Investor, where I had the privilege, and I thought it was a job, but it was a privilege to interview 120 millionaires. And that was just life-changing right there, you know, 120 hour to two hour conversations with people who made themselves millionaires was terribly enlightening. And then we partnered on two other books on investing. So um, I've been a student of this for a while, and we've also built quite our own real estate portfolio. So I would say that there's the two halves of the equation. Um, the number one thing, like if you use the thinking of the one thing that helped build our wealth as a family is we started tracking our net worth. And I've had case after case after case of people who've adopted this and they've done well. Um, my wife and I have taken care of ours and our children's needs. And now um, one of our goals is to create 10 billionaires um, over a period of time. And this last year, we decided to be a little bit more accountable. And so we started meeting with a group of our employees that wanted to be, they have to be a partner or an employee. We meet with them once a month and we help them track their net worth and build wealth. Last year, just the tracking before most of them invested, they grew their net worth by an average of about 4% a month, um, slightly larger. So I can know it worked for me. I know it worked for Gary. I know it's worked for a lot of our readers. And I've seen it work directly with this group of about 20 people we're working with. So it's a simple thing. Net worth, if you don't know what it means, I should have said that first, right? It's add up everything you own, your assets, subtract everything you owe, your liabilities or debt. The remainder is your net, your financial net worth. And that is the real number that determines your wealth. That's how you know if you're a millionaire or not. Um, so that was a big part of the battle because by tracking that number, we always knew how much cash we had on hand. We knew which of our assets were growing in value and which ones were depreciating in value. And that's a lesson in itself, right? You buy a car, the moment you drive it off the lot, your net worth goes down. You buy a house, which is a much bigger investment, and typically your net worth will go up over the course of the next year because you're paying the debt down and you tend to get appreciation. You're like, whoa, how does this work? Some assets go up, some of them go down. So it's a it's an educational tool, and you really understand where your money should go if you want it to grow. Um, the other half of it is that depending on your strategy, you may or may not get lots of cash flow from those investments. You're growing it, your asset value may or may not throw off a lot of cash. That's where your business shows up. We discovered fairly early on that the only way to get substantial cash flow from your investments you tend to have to diversify into business. So either your real estate business, real estate investing has to get so big, like apartment complexes, that it actually is more of a business than just a passive investment, or you're going to start investing in or launching businesses. But that's been our strategy. Track our net worth, um, build our, build it over time. We set goals every year, um, and we have absolute five-year goals for how much we want our net worth to grow. And then we also track our, cash flow. You know, what are these investments yielding to us after we pay ourselves a salary? 
So if you pay yourself a salary, the money you get on top of that is actually the value of that business in terms of cash flow. Because if you handed the keys to someone else, you'd have to pay them to run it. So what would you get as your investment? And that's the other number we track. And we're just always trying to make those two numbers grow. And that's been kind of our wealth building journey and how we share it with others. So rather than me like drone on and teach a you know monologue you to death, why don't you ask some questions based on that and we'll go deep wherever you think it best serves the listener. So do you get the family involved in this? Is this something that you discuss with your kids or is this something that you just sit down at your office and do all by yourself? Um, it's something that we do as a couple. So for, I guess, 13 or 14 years, part of our process is uh, a goal setting retreat. And whether like, it just happens that my wife and I are both entrepreneurs um, and a lot of families, that's not the case, but it still is very helpful, especially for the non-entrepreneur spouse who gets drug along in a lot of this madness. So we do an overnight babysitter at the end of the year, and we go to out to dinner, have fun, talk about the fun stuff we want to happen in the next year. And then the next day we get in room service, get out our laptops and plan. And we actually facilitate this now. It's one of our events, a couple's goal setting retreat, but the idea is to go way out where we want to be in five years and based on that, where we want to be this year. And that act of getting on the same page has been huge for us on our wealth building journey because it requires you to tighten your belt at times. And at least both halves of the family now know why we're choosing to do that. And it's not a battle. Um, that's one of the reasons couples fight. Our kids are just now teenagers. And though we haven't actively involved in them in that, um, we have them in a school that promotes entrepreneurship. They have had to do business fairs um, most years for the last five, where they have to kind of start up a business and run a booth. Um, they're hearing about this at the dinner table. And one of the best gifts is maybe our kids have grown up. And in the beginning, we thought it was bad. We were dragging them into flips and you know, our investment properties on the weekends and you know setting them up with a book or an iPad or in a safe place relative, you know, and while we painted or did whatever, our kids think it's totally normal that we own nine houses. They just think that's normal. So at least if, even if we haven't formally educated them, though we do have these discussions, we've hopefully imprinted some behavior on them about how we invest our money, um, where we're spending our time, and how we're growing our life. We just talk about it, and it's kind of cool. Oh, absolutely. Because, and I've had many discussions on this podcast about the mindset of money and, and poor people's mindset versus uh, rich people's mindset. And then I try to think in my own life, you know, where do these mindsets come from? Like, how did I develop this type of uh, ideas and work ethic and business practices? You know, okay, I know that a lot of it came from books and I, a lot of it came from, you know, reading online and stuff like that. But I can also think that my mother was an entrepreneur my entire life when I grew up. So I saw her go through a lot of these processes. And, you know, she was a real estate agent for, I don't know, 11 or 12 years or something like that. And I remember going and viewing houses on the weekend like that was a normal thing to do you know and and i i, I try to think about like all those things that i must have learned you know as a child and then how that's blossomed you know over the last 20 30 years of of, of living overseas and building my own business you know um i think our as parents if you're a parent listening to this we do i think the majority of what our kids inherit in terms of their thoughts about money if they see us fighting about money, that's going to survive, right? When they leave the house, if they see us 
talking about money and planning around it, that also, also tends to imprint. So I think a lot of what we have got from our parents. My dad, my mom and dad were very good about debt. Um, my dad was an executive, but I walked into my relationship with Gary thinking that the way one became wealthy was to get a high paying job. And most of the research I've seen is that while that can be a boon, a lot of times it actually works against you because if you're a lawyer, now you also feel like you've got to wear, you know, um, custom suits and drive the latest car. And there's the keeping up with the Joneses factor. So you make more money, but you spend more. And investing your money is really where it's at. So anyway, I just think we do have a responsibility to how we imprint these things on our kids. And we're all going to screw up a little bit. Um, but hopefully we can get it more right than not. And it's just, I don't know. I look at the future, what's happening with college education. Man, our kids are growing, going to grow up in a very different world than we grew up in. And I want them to have the flexibility that if they didn't want to go to college and be an employee, could they start their own business? What a gift that would be for that not to be as painful as it was for us, that they maybe had a little bit of a tailwind behind them. Brilliant. I love it. Jay, thank you so much for the conversation today. If my listeners want to learn more about what you do, if they want to get a hold of you, where can we send them? Um, luckily, I'm highly Googleable, so they can find me just about on any social platform just by Googling Jay Papazan. Um, and I do have, I maintain those myself when I have time. And then uh, the one thing.com with the number one is where all of our training and education and tons of free resources are. And, uh, you know, Mikel, I just thank you for having me. I feel like you and I could have just gone on and on and on talking about a million things. Um, thank you so much for asking such great questions. Thank you so much for being on the show. And for all of my listeners, if you have not read The One Thing, honestly, go pick it up. It is fantastic. If you look on business lists, you'll see it's usually in the top 50, top 100 best business books of all time. Um, it's fantastic. It is a must read. So, Jay, thank you again for being on the show. I really appreciate it. And uh, we'll talk soon, okay? It's my pleasure. You are not facing global uncertainty alone. There is help. Arm yourself with the foresight that only Early Warning Report, EWR, can provide. Since 1991, Richard Mayberry, editor of Early Warning Report, has guided readers in simple, fast-reading, direct language toward ways to protect their wealth against political, military, and financial chaos governments are causing around the world. The performance of your investments is determined mostly by the performance of the economy, and the performance of the economy is determined by law and politics. To know how your investments will behave, you must know how governments will behave. Often citing historical parallels, Early Warning Report doesn't just explain what is happening to you. It suggests ways to protect your savings. It suggests ways to protect your savings and earn profits. We challenge you to find any publication with a better track record. Between 1989 and 2007, geopolitics and the military events were dominant, offering huge profits. From 2007 to 2017, economics was the focus. Now Mr. Mayberry forecasts that geopolitics and military events have returned to center stage. These revelations and insights are available only in Early Warning Report. Take advantage of this time-limited offer. Order today. Join the exclusive group of well-informed readers who are highly skeptical of the analysis they receive from the mainstream media. Claim your 40% off of the cover price of Early Warning Report. Just go to expatmoneyshow.com forward slash EWR. 
This episode may be over, but your journey to greatness continues by visiting our webpage and signing up for our newsletter. For convenient access to new episodes, show notes, and other crucial resources, visit expatmoneyshow.com. We look forward to you joining us on the next episode of the Expat Money Show. Safe travels. I have managed to secure exclusive rights to a block of villas in one of the hottest up-and-coming regions in my current home country, Panama. Join me Saturday, May 4th at 10 a.m. Central, 11 a.m. Eastern Time for our special presentation called Investors Workshop, capitalizing on the globally recognized resort brand coming to Panama. We will discuss how the tourism landscape in this region will change rapidly upon the public announcement of this project and how I have secured the rights for my clients to capitalize on this opportunity before anyone else. Thanks to my connections in the region, I have negotiated pricing that front runs everyone else. Think early, early bird pricing. From gourmet restaurants to vibrant clubs, poolside activities, and even live bands, this resort is going to pump some serious life into the region. But this isn't what excites me or what should excite you either. The exciting part is that these world-class amenities and top brand will attract tens of thousands of tourists. Tourists who will fork over top dollar to stay at our investment properties. Register free at expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for this free real estate workshop. See you on May 4th at 10 a.m. Central Time. That's 11 a.m. Eastern time, go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinar.